This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Well, it is the 99th episode of the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. 99 episodes. Um, A big thank you to you for listening, whether this is the first time you have downloaded and tuned in, or if this is the 99th time. I appreciate it. As I've said before, and I'll say inevitably again, uh, my desire from this podcast, these short 20 to 25 minutes that you take out of your day to listen to me. I hope these are launch pads, and and this episode will hopefully be a a real good launch pad to send you off reading and watching and uh, maybe even planning for something, but that's really what I want the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast to be is uh, just a a spark that gets you doing things outside and in fly fishing. So with that said, um, we're going to get into today's content. So this, I was a little conflicted about doing this. So if you look back in the catalog, I've talked about why you should go fishing certain places. And there's some of my favorite places to go fishing, not real spot burning or anything like that. I, a lot of the places are very famous fly fishing spots. So it's not anything that's hidden or secret. And hopefully I'm not offending anybody by listing off some of these places. But I haven't done any of these for the last six months, I don't think. The reason being is that not a lot of us are traveling in the last six months. That being said, it's possible. You can go a lot of different places. But the place I'm I'm actually suggesting, there's a lot of uh, people that can't go there, or at least they can't go there without quarantine. But, of course, these podcasts live on for perpetuity as long as I pay my hosting fees. Uh, And so this is something that will be listened to uh, in the future, hopefully when people can travel without restrictions. And so uh, that's going to be something that uh, I'll reference later. But hopefully... This will just give you uh, a little bit of a taste and whet your appetite for a really cool fly fishing destination. And honestly, you know, it's being recorded in October. And one of the reasons why I want to talk about this location is because my first experience with southwestern Vermont 
and the Manchester area was in the fall. And in fact, the majority of the time that I've spent there has been in the fall in September and October. And it's just a really, really cool scene. It's beautiful and uh, the fishing isn't half bad either. So without further ado, I want to talk about why you should go fishing in Manchester, Vermont. But that being said, Manchester, Vermont isn't a premier fly fishing destination. Now, that's not to say that it's a bad place to go if you want to catch trout. In fact, it's home to a solid, historic brown trout fishery in the Battenkill. The smaller streams in the mountains teem with native burkeys. There's bass and there's muskie that can be found in other local water bodies. It's just not what it used to be, the Battenkill. And furthermore, it isn't made up of the same stuff as nearby options like the North Main Woods or the nearby Upper Delaware River system. For me, though, it's just fine. Why? Well, the historic piece is a large part of it. Like many young fly fishers, I was exposed to a little fly rod company called Orvis when I started in the sport. I grew infatuated, eventually incessantly talking to a store manager until I was able to land a job with Orvis in college. With a flagship store and a rod factory in Manchester, the Orvis fan in me can't help but get excited to fish in southwestern Vermont. Additionally, I'm enamored with the history of the sport in our country. Manchester is also home to the American Museum of Fly Fishing. This quintessentially New England building is bursting at the seams with rods, flies, and photographs of presidents and industry pioneers. Some of them fish the very waters that flow near the museum, albeit in a time where the angling was a little bit more productive. Of course, apart from these two fly fishing monoliths, Manchester is just a great place to be. It's nestled in the mountains. It's not that far from New York or Boston. There's an absolute wealth of non-angling options for time off the water or for any traveling companions that would rather enjoy shopping than wetting a line. Food, hiking, and in the fall, leaves are all a part of the charm of this corner of Vermont. And all of these activities happen to occur near and even on the banks of the waters around Manchester. And, of course, the Battenkill is the centerpiece of all these waters. So it flows from the Green Mountains southward into Manchester. And the Batten Kill tumbles through quaint farmlands before it doglegs west and heads toward the New York border. The aesthetics have not changed much. Small homes, gentle fields, and little New England hamlets punctuate a flow that is generally surrounded by old forests. Like nearly all East Coast rivers, the fishing has changed. What was once a great brook trout fishery turned into a great brown trout fishery. But a common scene, logging, modern development, and just general use have taken their toll. The river's struggling, but it's improving. The trout aren't what they used to be, but they're still there. There are plenty of places where you can go to catch lots of big trout. There are also those places where you can go for so much more than just fish. History, culture, and a sense of being in a fly fishing place can't be found in nearly as many destinations. Fly fishing on the Battenkill requires work. I've failed much more than I've succeeded, but I've also seen enormous golden fish swipe at my streamers. I've spooked dark 20-inch shadows out of under-weedy banks. I've seen countless gentle dimples appearing on the water surfaces in the evening, and they only take the most precisely presented imitations of virtually invisible insects. So, Manchester, Vermont is a premier destination. The reason why is simple. When you're there, you get to live the story of the Orvis Company, the American Museum of Fly Fishing, and the Batten Kill. The river's story has its ups and its downs, but it flows through a greater narrative of a local fly fishing culture that is hopefully building towards conflict resolution. 
and as aware as conscientious participants, we get to be a part of that story. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you are a fly fisher in the United States and at this point in history in the world, you are unequivocally linked to the story in Manchester, Vermont. Now, of course, there's a few caveats, and they're, they're not bad caveats, they're just caveats. Uh, the first one is, is this. Um, Orvis has a reputation that, for a time, was very deserved. Uh, even 15 years ago, the Tweed image was being pushed pretty hard. But they weren't alone in that. It wasn't like they were the ones that were driving that. Uh, I think that was a fly fishing industry issue. And uh, they just might have been a little bit later in kind of buying into where the industry and those who uh, bought products and those who fly fished were going. But they're right there right now. I am happy to say that I have been just completely content with rods, reels, lines, uh, accessories, clothing that I've bought from Orvis in the last five uh, years or so. I'm very, very pleased with those things. And actually, I still fish with a lot of gear that I got 20 years ago when I was actually working at Orvis. Uh, it still holds up well. So I know there's some naysayers, but I think that's kind of like a stereotype. That's a generalization that I don't think is well warranted. Could somebody have a bad experience with that company or any company? Absolutely. And that's valid. But by and large, I think that Orvis is doing some really good stuff. And they're not just a fly rod company. I think you have to appreciate that. I think that uh, people are expecting the same sort of marketing and imaging and other things from them and other huge companies that do uh, dozens and dozens of different things that they are for a company that maybe just makes fly rod. And that's just not realistic. Um, but uh, the last few fly rods I've bought from them, I'm absolutely happy with. So I'm not here to be an apologist or a defender, but it's just it's worth pointing out. This isn't an advertisement for Orvis, but I would say it is an advertisement to go to Manchester, go to the flagship store, go to the rod shop, check out the uh, the, the sale barn or whatever they call it that's just down the street. I mean, it's a really cool scene, and uh, whether you spend uh, $0 or $1,000, I think you will appreciate it. Whether you only look at the fly rods or you look at the dog beds and you look at the um, you know, the, the, the home decor or you walk around the property and check out the giant trout that you can feed pellets to. I mean, that's stuff that I still enjoy. It's stuff that my kids absolutely love. It's stuff that my wife gets into. It's stuff that people who I've brought there who don't fish have really appreciated. You know, what's a really cool thing is that I've taken, um, uh, groups of people there, uh, on different activities for, for work and, and for, uh, other, uh, trips. And every time I've gone out there, they have been handed fly rods without me saying, hey, you should try to cast a fly rod. You've never cast a fly rod before. You should you should go find one. There's been employees there who have been handing fly rods, say, hey, would you like to try to cast this? Would you like to go out and you know I'll show you around? And these aren't big name fly fishers. These are just people who are working in the fly shop or they have on a weekend there to kind of show people around. It's very cool. You don't get to see that often where people are, obviously they want to make a sale. You know, let's not be uh, disingenuous about this. They would love to sell a uh, H3 or, you know, a Superfine or whatever to to one of these people. But it was just really cool. And uh, there was a couple of trips where I took groups of teenagers out to Manchester for just a weekend of hiking and things like that. And we stopped into Manchester and uh, went to the flagship store at Orvis. And uh, folks were out there showing these teenagers how to cast. So I have pictures of, you know, a dozen of these teenagers that I, I brought out to Vermont. And they're all casting fly rods. And I didn't do any of it. 
it just happened naturally because of uh, them being exposed. And, you know, then they had apple cider and they had caramel corn and all those great things. So, you know, I, I guess, like I said, it's definitely worth going and checking out. So that's, you know, a couple of minutes on one company that I'm not on the payroll for, but I'm a fan of. Second uh, thing that I did want to mention is that, like, kind of as I alluded to, this is a great destination if you're wanting to go somewhere for a little bit of fishing, but there's a lot of other things to do. The hiking is fantastic. And as I mentioned earlier, my exposure has almost been all in the fall, and it's just spectacular. It's breathtaking. The area all around Manchester, um, really in all four directions, is really, really beautiful. And it's not just the leaves and the mountains, but it's those little towns and the cafes and the breweries and the honey and the cheese and the produce and all of those things. It's a really, really cool scene. And uh, downtown Manchester actually has shopping, outlet shopping, but it's not like the ugly uh, strip mall style. It's kind of in, in grained into the town and kind of just nestled into it and for all of the um, outlet stores that there are there's also independent bookstores and independent uh, coffee shops and uh, independent clothing shops so it's a really cool spot that you can take somebody who isn't necessarily going to be fishing or if you're not going to be fishing the whole time and there's a lot of things to do Um, and, and it's not that far from a lot of places in the northeast Again, right now, they have a travel ban for almost everybody unless you live in super, super rural parts of New York and Maine um, or Vermont itself, but I'm pretty sure that that's going to change in the very near future. So what do you need if you're going to go fishing in Manchester? Well, it's a classic trout stream. The Batten Kill is a classic trout stream, so you would be fine with a four, five, six weight and an eight to nine foot and a floating line and you're going to be fishing normal New England hatches. The hatches aren't as prolific as they are in some of the streams that I mentioned before, like the Delaware River system, or even as you get into uh, to Maine or uh, upstate New York, but you're going to encounter all of the normal seasonal hatches that you would find in the Northeast. But of course, the nymphing is good. There are the the, the the geology of the stream is such that you do have some really deep holes that you have, um, you know, big undercut banks. So if you do want to strip a streamer, you can do that. So that's for the bat and kill. That's four, five, six weights in the eight foot to nine foot range. My favorite uh, setup for fishing the bat and kill, just because it just feels right, is I have a seven foot nine inch uh, bamboo four weight. I love that with a floating line and just taking my time because there is canopy. But it's a wide enough stream that if you get out in it and you fish back towards the bank, which is probably my favorite way to fish it when there's not an active hatch happening and there's fish in the, all over the water rising. If I'm going to be nymphing or if I'm going to be fishing a streamer, I'm going to be fishing a terrestrial in the summer and to early fall, standing in the middle of that stream, casting towards the bank, you have all the room in the world to make those casts. Um, but then uh, if you want to go up into the mountains and fish some of these feeder creeks, that's where you're going to find brook trout. And one of the things that I, I've noticed from following some people who work for Orvis on social media is that there's a lot more pictures of them with little brook trout and them fishing on mountain streams than there are of them fishing on what I can tell is uh, the bat and kill, some a big you know meadow stretch or um, a, a wider river. And that's because the fishing for brook trout and maybe even some of the introduced uh, browns on these tributary streams. Um, and other streams in the region is just as good, if not better. And uh, I appreciate fishing for brook trout and high gradient mountain streams in every state that they are found. 
even though it's very similar, it's very different. I think I've talked about that on a podcast before, but I find that with the brook trout in uh, southwestern Vermont. And again, there you fish with your normal uh, small stream tackle. And I would say that, you know, keeping it a little bit of a shorter rod when, as I always say, a little bit of a faster action so you can control your back cast and control the trajectory of your cast is, is probably the way to go. But the same thing, you know, they're, they're, they're opportunistic feeders so you're fishing uh your attractor dries but uh, at the same time uh this is an area that has been hit by use so it's not like they're going to be as prolific as they would in a super wild place so you are going to have a fish over some discerning fish and uh, some fish that uh, aren't going to be just uh, jumping out of every pool lastly go to the american museum of fly fishing some awesome stuff there uh i would absolutely recommend uh, doing some reading beforehand kind of know what you're going to expect they have a great website with a lot of resources even if it's not your bag to be able to see stuff see some of these tangible things that uh, maybe you only read about in books um, it's exposing you to all sorts of different things whether it be personalities um, or whether it be products the, all of these things that have fed into where we are in the 21st century with fly fishing and with conservation uh, in our country and in our world, uh, a lot of that kind of has been funneled through the American Museum of Fly Fishing. They have all sorts of activities and events. Uh, they have programs. They have fly tying. They do all sorts of stuff there, and it's right next to the Orvis facility. It's right on the banks of the Battenkill, and so it's uh, definitely a great place for you to go check out. So one quick anecdote before I get into some other things uh, this week on the podcast. So my wife and I did a bed and breakfast there for our 10-year anniversary, I believe. And we were right across the street from the Batten Kill. And I found this deep hole, and there was an enormous trout in it. Enormous trout. Big, big, big brown trout. Uh, probably 20, 22 inches. And I just watched things. And there was absolutely no way I was going to get my fly down to this. Uh, weighted nymph wasn't going to happen big streamer with a, um, a sculpin head on it, not going to happen. There was there was no way. This thing was in the perfect spot where it didn't have to swim hardly at all, and uh, the the food would probably find its way to it, but my fly with the, the leader attached to it wasn't going to get its itself down where that fish was. And so I tried an inordinate amount of time on the first night, and I realized that I am so mosquito-proof because my wife is a mosquito magnet. So we've been out earlier in the day doing some hiking, and then we ate outside, and she just got destroyed by bugs. And I thought, I'm not getting touched by a thing. I was feeling great about myself. But then I realized that uh, as soon as she was gone, I was the next best thing, and I had never been attacked by mosquitoes more than I was that night. So the next night, I come out, long sleeves, long pants, a buff, a floppy hat just covered up with bug spray on the few bits of remaining skin that were were exposed to the elements and like an idiot i tried for the same fish again uh, to no avail well this stretch where i was fishing w was um, a gravel bottom um, but there's a lot of undulating weeds it was in the end of summer and so i went back into the main part of the river and started fishing upstream and i found this big weed bed and i kind of got up against it so it was on my left knee and the river went to my right and it was coming down towards me I was fishing upstream um, to some dimpling uh, rises and you know to, to some success and <sighs> fished all the way up to the front of this long stretch of weeds fished and fished and fished and 
um, tied on a streamer, and I thought, you know what, let's uh, let me go cast back on the other side of these weeds. So I'd been fishing up this weed bed, and it was probably a 10, 15 foot wide uh, weed bed, and so I started fishing down that bank um, that was to my left, and when I got to the end, I thought, I can't believe I didn't move a fish. So I stepped into the weeds just to see what would happen, and not even two feet in front of me, a uh, another probably 18 inch brown trout just came right out. So that thing was totally content for me to walk up past it and down past it to fish through it, and it didn't move until I actually disturbed it. I mean, things like that are what make you say, I know these things are just fish, but this is why we go after them because they're doing things that we can't figure out. And just like that fish that was in that deep hole, this fish, there was no way I was going to put my fly in front of it in a way that was going to force it to bite. It was going to have to want to go after my fly. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's nothing I could have done about that, which that's the joy and the challenge and the allure of fly fishing and of doing so many other outdoor pursuits is that no matter what you do, you are only one variable in a much, much greater system. And so anyway, um, lots of stories about southwestern Vermont, but that was one that stands out the most in my mind, primarily because of my mosquito and uh, losing trout situation. So head up there. If you have any great Manchester, Vermont stories, Orvis stories, American Museum of Fly Fishing stories, or Vermont stories, feel free to share them. Matthew at castingacross.com. This week on Casting Across two articles as per usual the first one is called hike to the fish hike to the fish is a little bit of a, a derivative piece off of a thing i wrote a few years ago called run to the fish as i mentioned many times in the podcast i hurt my foot i'm not trail running this season so i've had to alter what i carry and how i carry it if i'm going to go fishing miles up in the mountain so this article is a little bit about my packing list and about my approach to going fishing up in the mountains when I'm not going to be running, but I am going to be moving relatively quickly. A couple of gear suggestions, um, one of which is that Reddington Benchmark boot. Absolutely love it. Great, great boot. Lightweight, dried out quickly. I actually ended up hiking back in it um, because it was so comfortable. And uh, fished the uh, Reddington uh, Butterstick fiberglass rod. That was a lot of fun. And... um, used a VitaVu backpack, which I'll come back to at the episode recommendation at the end. So if you are not a trail runner, but you do want to get into the woods a little bit deeper, check out that article called Hike to the Fish. And then Wednesday's article is called When to Stop Fishing. And in New Hampshire, where I was fishing, I could fish for another two weeks. I think I'm good until either October 15th or October 30th. They have a couple of different designations on some of their trout waters, uh, and I can't remember exactly where I was, what the designation was. But these are one of the things where it's important that you check your local regulations. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is that that's just step one. You may have local regulations that allow you to fish on a stream where it probably isn't the most ideal thing to do to go fishing on that stream from a stewardship from a conservation perspective because they might be making one blanket uh, regulation call for a state that has a very diverse range of fisheries spring creeks freestone streams different different populations of trout uh, that spawn at different times different rivers that have different temperatures and so consequently the uh, spawning behavior changes from one watershed to the next it's not gonna be great it's not gonna be like one fish spawns at late august that spawns in you know early november if they're both brook trout but there there is variations and so in this this um really really short 
article, I write about some of the considerations that I have when I am choosing to fish. But I think it's worth mentioning. I also say that I'm not going to cast judgment on somebody who fishes at a different time than me. Uh, I think there are some incredibly irresponsible ways to do it, but I think those are kind of on one end of the bell curve, um, that you you can be way too conservative in your approach to uh, fly fishing in the fall or around spawn time, and you can also be way too um, liberal and reckless in how you go uh, fly fishing in around spawning fish. So I kind of offered hopefully a balanced approach with a little bit of grace on both ends in this article uh, called When to Stop Fishing. So think about that and uh, check that out. This week's recommendation on the podcast is an awesome backpack. Now, this is a backpack I've used for years, but I've actually never fished in it. It's been kind of my overnight bag and uh, just kind of a, a bag that I'll bring if I have to bring a change of clothes somewhere or, or bring a bunch of extra gear, but I've never actually used it for its absolutely designed purpose, which is to go fishing in, and that is the Vitavu Spinner Daypack. I've talked about Vitavu quite a bit. Awesome company, great people, handmade in the United States to order. I have an older model of the Vitavu Spinner Day Pack. Actually, it's one of the ones that uh, the owner, Scott Hunter, uh, built when he was still doing it in his basement. He's had his own workshop for, goodness, five years now, four years now. I can't remember. But um, the company's 10 years old. This is one of the original Spinner Day Packs, and it fits everything you need. Not a lot of bells and whistles, just lots of lash points and one big pocket with a, a hydration uh, capability in it, uh, places for uh, trekking poles and rod tubes on the sides. You can cinch it up wicked tight. Um, but the best thing about this pack is the strap system. Super comfortable straps on your shoulders. They're padded straps. And then when they buckle across your chest, the shoulder straps will slide horizontally so they can go wide to distribute that weight across your shoulders while you're moving. So as I was hiking from my car to where I was going to fish, it was about three miles, I had them out wide. But as soon as I got my rod out and started fishing, I slid them in so they were almost touching. So it was creating almost like a V-neck from my shoulders down to the middle of my chest at that buckle. And I had a full range of motion with both of my arms, which allowed me to scramble over rocks and make all the casts I needed. Awesome backpack, super durable. They're actually made out of an even more durable material today than they, the, the one that I have. But it's a really great idea if you are having to move into the woods and you don't want to stash your stuff somewhere, then go fish for a while and then go find it. If you want to keep your stuff on your back, then this is a great solution to it. Um, they stand behind their products. Uh, I highly recommend them. Um, you can check them out at vitavu.com. I'll put a link to the spinner day pack. And there's actually a larger one called the hex day pack um, that they have that I will uh, link to. So you can check that out on the, sh the show's page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.